The following program is being brought to you on the Seventh Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit SeventhWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Authentic Living Show. Today, we are very fortunate to get an opportunity to talk to best-selling author, Andrew Solomon writer, lecturer on psychology, politics, and the arts, and winner of the National Book Award for The Noonday Demon and Atlas of Depression. There is so much I could say about Mr. Solomon. He has just done so many things and won so many awards, it would take us hours to tell, tell you all about it. But just for now, I'll give you a brief overview. He's an activist in LGBT rights, mental health, and the arts. His latest New York Times bestselling book and the subject of our interview today is entitled Far from the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity. It is also the winner of several awards, including being chosen at, um, among the New York Times 10 Best Books of 2012. It's been called a bold and unambiguous call to redefine how we view difference, a stunning work of scholarship and compassion by USA Today, distinguished similarly by many other notables, um, for its exceptional profundity, compassion, and insight. So today, we're going to take an intimate look at this entire concept of loving differentness. So don't miss this opportunity to hear from one of our world's most um, intelligent people with regard to this concept of differentness. Welcome, Andrew, to our show. Thank you so much for being here. Well, what a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the very generous introduction. Oh, you're so welcome. You very much earned it. Well, let's just sort of jump right in there. Uh, tell me, uh, you know, I, I've heard you speak about uh, this book, and I, and I really loved what you had to say. I want to know if you'll just tell our listening audience what it was that drove you to, to write this book in the first place. About 20 years ago, my editors at the New York Times Magazine asked me to write a book, an article about deaf culture. And I was very taken aback at the time because I thought of deafness as entirely a disability. Those poor people, they couldn't hear. And I didn't have any sense of deafness as a culture. And then I moved into the deaf world for a while. I met um, many deaf people. I went to deaf clubs. I went to deaf theater. I went to the Miss Deaf America contest in Nashville. I really saw that deafness is a culture of people united by the shared use of sign language. And as I got deeper and deeper into that culture, I found it a very beautiful culture. It wasn't my culture, and I wasn't prepared to make myself deaf to join it. But I was very moved by it, and I could see why the people who were in it cherished their membership in it. And then I discovered that most deaf children are born to hearing parents, that those hearing parents, by and large, try to get their children to function in the hearing world as much as possible, and that those deaf people discover deaf identity often only in adolescence or thereafter. And as I came to a deeper and richer understanding of that, I thought how similar it was to the experience of gay kids who are mostly born to straight 
who mostly think if they could function in the regular world, they would have an easier life. And I saw that there was a real, uh, a real parallel. And then a friend of a friend of mine had a daughter who was a dwarf. And I thought, well, there it is again. There it is again, this question of how much one is trying to establish or create an identity for a child who's different and how much one is trying to get them to participate in the regular world and regular life. As this child's mother said, I don't know whether I should tell her she's just like everyone else but a little shorter or whether we should become active in the little people of America. I thought, here's that question again. And I thought, it would be interesting to write a book in which I look at all of these identities that children can have that they don't share with their parents. Absolutely. And and what an amazing book you've written. I have really loved reading this book. It's been uh, a real insightful. You spent a lot of time really giving us a lot of the details of the whole concept of a particular form of differentness, and statistically and, and with regard to mental health as well, and looking very compassionately both at the parents and the children in these kind of scenarios. So I, I really want to thank you for this work. It's a very well done piece of work. Well, thank you so much. It was indeed a long piece of work, and it's very gratifying to get that warm response to it. Oh, you're very welcome. So you talk in this book about the various forms of differentness, uh, like you just said, uh, deafness. You've talked about dwarfism, Down syndrome, autism, schizophrenia, and several more. So I know that you didn't talk about all different kinds of uh, differentness. How did you select which kinds of differentness you would write about and which kinds you wouldn't write about? The first half of the book, which are the chapters you just cataloged, are all things that we've tended to treat as diseases. And so they're descriptions of um, disease categories, deafness, dwarfism, autism, Down syndrome, schizophrenia, um, multiple severe disabilities. The second half are conditions that we've tended to describe as more socially determined. So I looked at families of prodigies who are also quite overwhelmed to show that a family dealing with difference was struggling even when the difference was a positive one. And I looked at women bringing up or families bringing up children conceived in rape to try to indicate that this complexity that gets added into the relationship between parent and child, this sense of alienness, can have to do not only with the child's genetics or health status, but also with where the child comes from. And I read about families of people who commit crimes in order to indicate um, that it could also have to do with what the child does, and about the families of people who are transgender, because that's an area in which there's been so much debate as to what's nature and what's nurture and how it all really uh, aligned. And so that was my overall structuring principle. I considered at least 50 topics that didn't make it into the book. Partly, I had to limit myself because the book is reasonably chunky, even as it is, and I didn't want to make it absolutely enormous instead of encyclopedia. Um, but I tried, as I chose conditions, to choose conditions that made a kind of constellation. So deafness and blindness are very different, but I felt if I was writing about one, I didn't need to write about the other. Um, there were a lot of other categories. If I was doing dwarfism, I didn't need to do Marfan syndrome and gigantism. Um, there were a lot of those, uh, those sorts of distinctions to be made. Also, I have to say, I got swept away in the experience of doing the research when I heard really amazing stories. I remember being at a party at which someone said, but you have to do a chapter on Down syndrome. And I thought, well, I'm not that interested in Down syndrome. And he said, you will be after you talk to my friend. And he gave me the number of this friend, and I went and talked to her, and I thought, wow, that is an amazing story, and Down syndrome is an amazing thing to write about, and I definitely want to start researching it. So it was a kind of organic process. Yeah, okay, so it took shape as you went, yeah. And experiences like that definitely do change us. Well, I know in particular that you're an activist for LGBT rights, so I know that was a big issue for you growing up. And uh, so I wondered what 
what what was there uh, a specific kind of way of deselecting that particular category? Well, I feel like the whole book is informed by the experience, my experience of being gay. That was what gave me the awareness of and the interest in how a child deals with these identities different from um, uh, those of their parents. Um, and I really feel in some ways I wrote the book as a means to forgive my parents for their initial discomfort with my being gay. At the time that uh, this all first came up, I felt like my parents didn't love me because they didn't instantly embrace this part of me. And now, with the wisdom of greater retrospect, I feel as though my parents always loved me, but it took them a while to accept me interested in the difference between love and acceptance. I framed the book with an opening chapter that's about my experience as the gay child of straight parents and a closing chapter that's about my experience of becoming a parent myself um, because I really feel that that's the, the passage um, within which uh, these narratives, the stories of all of the people I talked to took place. Um, and I didn't want to do a chapter that was specifically on gay uh, on the gay question because I felt the question of how much of myself to put into it or leave out of it would have been complicated. I prefer to use it as the framing mechanism. Yeah, okay. Well, that makes complete sense. So, you know, in all this, what I'm really aware of in reading the book and, and talking with you now, I, I, I'm really aware that there's a kind of way in which the, uh, the sort of culture of differentness is sameness. Do, 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 does that make any sense at all? Sorry, say that again. The culture of differentness is sameness? Is sameness. So that it, you know, there's a sameness in differentness. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Um, that was something I felt very strongly as I continued to work on the book. I thought any of these conditions individually can be quite isolating. There are only so many families dealing with Down syndrome, only so many dealing with um, autism, only so many dealing with criminality. But when uh, you look at their experience, it turns out that all of the families who are dealing with those sorts of challenges are dealing with the problem of difference within the family. And actually, they have a huge amount in common. And if you think about it in that light, then these parents aren't in small, isolated, siloed communities, but rather are part of something that makes up, I think, the bulk of humanity. Because even for people whose children don't have these recognizable conditions, the sense parents have of feeling like there's an otherness to their child and an otherness in their interaction with their child remains very profound. Yeah, and that otherness is is profound in it, in and of itself. In that we we look at it that way. I mean, I, of course, my ideal would be that we would ultimately get to a place where differentness was a part of our just of the fabric, and it wouldn't be considered to be abnormal, so to speak, to be different. Well, I really hope we're headed in that direction. I do think we live in a much more tolerant society than we used to, and I think there's more room for difference. Now, obviously, that varies from place to place. It varies from person to person. Overall, I think we've moved toward having a more accepting uh, society, and I think it's terrific when you can have people who have these differences from they aren't the only thing about them. I mean, one of the people I know who's worked for many years with people with disabilities described going out to lunch with the fellow who has Down syndrome and is on Glee. Um, and she said, we were sitting at a restaurant and people were coming up to him for his autograph. She said he was a celebrity first and a person with a disability second. I never thought I would live to see that day. And I thought that was very powerful. You couldn't have been a celebrity with a disability, um, even I think 15 or 20 years ago. And now you can yeah, I'm very much aware of how, like people like FDR, hid his disability for from from the public so that they would not 
um, disrespect him in whatever way they would have if they had known that he was disabled or had had polio. So, yeah, we, we don't celebrate that kind of differentness. And I think the sense that people can um, uh, can stop being closeted. I mean, FDR, of course, everyone knew that he had polio um, and that he was in a wheelchair. But you're right. Whenever he was uh, in any presentational mode, he did everything he could to disguise it. It takes a lot of energy to do all of that disguising. It's taken a lot of energy for people who didn't have the skill set to become president of the United States to hide whatever it was that was wrong with them. And I think when we say to people, you know, hide whatever you think is unsightly, but um, go ahead and be yourself. It liberates people to put their energy into developing in other, far more productive ways. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that a little bit after the break, too, uh, which is coming up in just a few minutes. But I wanted to, you know, I, I am sitting here recalling an incident from my, my son's uh, fourth grade where his uh, the little girl came into the class wearing orange shoelaces and the, some boys started making fun of her, and uh, the teacher, instead of telling the boys to stop making fun of her, she went to the little girl, pulled her off to the side, and told her, uh, "Don't wear, you know, probably you shouldn't wear those those um, um, shoelaces tomorrow." Um, and so I was, I was the cookie mom at that day, and I saw this interaction take place, and I thought, "Oh my gosh, that is so like what we do, isn't it? We tell the person that's different, different." to not be different so that they can fit into sameness. Absolutely. We do it over and over again, and I think it, we do it at high cost. Oh, yeah. Yes, to ourselves as well as to other people, as is told so well in your book about how much the parents of these children gain from the child who is different. Yes, and I think that was one of the things that was surprising to me, and it was clearly had been surprising to a lot of these parents. There's one woman who has a son with Down syndrome named Emily Pearl Kingsley, who uh, is a writer for Sesame Street. And she wrote a wonderful uh, little kind of prose poem about the experience of having a child with a disability. And she said, it's as if all your life you've wanted to go to Italy and all your friends are going to Italy and you get your tickets and you get on the plane. And as it's landing, the flight attendant says, welcome to Holland. And you say, Holland? I'm not going to Holland. I'm going to Italy. But Holland is where you come to, and in Holland you must stay, she writes. But if you give it a little bit of time and space, you can recognize that you haven't gone to a terrible, awful place, that Holland has mills, and Holland has tulips, and Holland even has Rembrandts. And if you can see all of the things that are beautiful in the experience of having a child with disabilities and differences, you're going to have a much better time of it than if you're totally focused on being so upset that you didn't get what you wanted and you didn't get the trip to Italy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. That openness to change uh, and, and sort of shifting our mindset is, is so important to what you've written in this book. I think it's, that's one of the things that just screams out of this book, at least for me, that, that kind of willingness to say, okay, here it is. This is my reality, and this is what I'm going to deal with, and I'm going to grow because of this. And maybe there's not even a resolution to grow, but it's organic in the process. I think it's organic, and I also think it is a resolution. It's a kind of decision. One of the mothers I interviewed said, you know, people always give us these little sayings, like God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. She said, but children like ours are not preordained as a gift. They're a gift because that's what we have chosen. And I think there is a real sense that parents have to make a decision. 
this isn't what we wanted, this isn't what we were going for, but we're going to find a way to um, locate some meaning in the experience. And when parents are able to do that, they're able to be much better parents to their children. Absolutely, absolutely, to be willing to just go with that flow and see where it carries you instead of deciding in advance how it ought to be. Yep, I think that's the that's the mission. And a lot of the time, I think it's not really about finding meaning, it's about looking for meaning. I think as soon as you decide to look for meaning, you're actually beginning to have a positive relationship to your child's difference. Yeah, and I, I want to spend some time, and we will do this after the break, so I'm, at, I'm challenging our listeners to stay tuned for this. We're to talk about that whole idea of how it, it uh, the shift from it, uh, the idea of it being different to the idea of it being what uh, what is and what is valuable in and of itself. So we'll we'll be talking about that some more um, after the break. But uh, you know, uh, the thing that is one of the ways you chose to write this book was about parenting, and 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 you said that you were the son of parents who didn't at first accept. And you became uh, then you became the parent and and looked back and began to realize that your parents did it in fact love you they had to work with acceptance and uh, that whole process of of parenting teaches us all a whole lot about what it is to love unconditionally and just by unconditionally I mean removing our conditionality from it um, and so uh, you know I really want to talk about that the how it is that you selected that that angle to come at. So we'll be talking about that after the break. Um, so we are going to take, uh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I just said great. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we are going to take a break and uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes to hear more from Andrew Solomon. Uh, stay tuned for more. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Explore subconscious programs, belief systems, and past life memories that may be sabotaging your life. Join host Dorian Light on her show, All About You, as she helps you to shift change and heal your life. Each week, Dorian does a light session using psychic energetics and the language of light to energetically shift and clear negative patterns you have stored regarding that week's topics. Step into the realm of infinite possibilities for your life. All About You airs live Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on 7th Wave. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Being Here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss Being Here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane, right here on the 7th Wave Network. 
Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And the Authentic Living Show is sponsored by the American Institute of Holistic Theology. You may wonder what the terms holistic theology mean. Well, theology is the study of the divine, and holistic theology is a holistic study of the divine that includes all religions and even transcends religion to get to the mystical core of them all. The American Institute of Holistic Theology offers doctorate, master's, and ministerial bachelor's degree, chaplaincy programs with internship, NBCC-approved continuing education, and a Ph.D. program in holistic theology. AIHT's programs include degrees in the following, holistic theology, uh, offering as terminal degrees both a Th.D. and a Ph.D., holistic ministries, holistic health and spiritual care, metaphysical spirituality, and alternate spiritual traditions, which includes in-depth studies in the paranormal. Using a home study model for distance learning, the student of AIHT gets a thorough education in the field that fulfills and offers a chance to authenticate a unique gift for the world. What is most important to AIHT's model is the exploratory nature of studies that reach to the depths of all the world's religions, traditions, and paths, utilizing as your text writing teachers, spiritual experts from all over the world. The coursework allows students to explore and find their own spiritual experience and path, and then if they wish, to take healing, help, and wisdom to others. So AIHT is changing the world one student at a time. And all you have to do to enroll is either go to www.aiht.edu or contact Admissions Director Beverly Love at 800-650-4325. That number again, 800-650-4325. You know, Oprah says education is the key to unlocking the world, a passport to freedom. Call and get your passport today. And we're talking today to Andrew Solomon, the author of Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity, and we're learning a lot about how, what it is that difference is and isn't, and we're also learning a lot about what it is to love differentness and find value in it. So um, we were talking just before the break, Andrew, about um, the fact that you chose to use the parenting model for uh, this approach to differentness, and I really like that because it really does point out the struggle we all have with differentness in the in that sense of acceptance. Can you say just a little bit more about that? Well, I think there's always the question for parents. What are the things about my child that I'm going to celebrate that are immutable and unchangeable and are characteristic of him forever? And what are the things about my child that I'm going to try to change? And all parenting involves both. You have to make your child feel good about himself, but you also have to change your child. You educate him, you give him a sense um, of moral values, you try to teach him uh, how to exist and how to be in the world. So I was very interested in the idea that there's a lot of stuff that falls in a gray middle where you can't decide, should I celebrate this or should I try to change and fix it? And I wanted to look at the ways in which 
parents respond to having children who are different. And a lot of the parents I interviewed had started off looking at some of the characteristics I was writing about and thinking, but this is a disaster, this is a tragedy, we have to fix this, and ended up thinking, actually, this child has turned out pretty amazingly wonderful, and I feel kind of proud of having done it. So there was a real shift from one point of view to the other. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. And I love the way you start out the book saying that there's no such thing as reproduction and that we don't reproduce, we produce. And the idea that we reproduce immediately sort of sets up the idea that we're going to produce offspring who are like us. And you wrote this sentence, insofar as our children resemble us, they are our most precious admirers. And insofar as they they differ, they can be our most vehement detractors. So can you say something about that dichotomy there? Yes, I can. Uh, I think a lot of people, before they have children, have a sort of fantasy that their children are going to be extensions of themselves. Um, they have the idea that, you know, they've put in the genetic material along with um, that of somebody they uh, love or care about and that they're going to um, they're going to produce a child who is reflective of both of them. And children come into the world and they're their own people and they aren't just a mix of you and your husband or you and your wife or you and your partner. They're, um, they're very much themselves. And so I was very interested in that. And I was interested in the way in which um, people, uh, people really want their children to be like them, whatever it is that they're like. People over and over again want children who share their values and share their interests and are focused on the same things they are. And, you know, if you have a high-achieving family who have a child who's low-achieving, there's a lot of pain and embarrassment in that. It makes you feel like you failed. And some of the time, if you're um, a sort of an ordinary family and you have a child who's brilliant and doing these remarkable things, that can be pretty uncomfortable too. You can feel like, I don't really know this child. He doesn't really fit into my family. I don't know who he is or who she is. And so I was very interested in how people manage to deal with having children who are different and manage not to say, oh my God, this is a disaster, but rather to say, huh, there's a lot that's of value here. Oh, yeah. And I have a theory, and I want to hear your think. I think I think you would agree, but I, I want to hear your thinking on it, that one of the reasons we have so much trouble with uh, the, how, our, how our children look is that we're looking for mirrors in our children. We sort of want them to make us feel good about our identities. And we, we have, most of us have some level of insecurity about who am I, who am I really, and how do I present to the world? And we want to sort of look at our children and say, see, there I am, I'm beautiful, aren't I? <laughs> and when exactly. it doesn't turn, yes. So, that, so, yeah, say some more about that. Well, I think that's absolutely true. I think um, that there is this idea which in classical text was called um, narcissism, but the idea that your child is actually a part of you um, and that you feel about your child the way that you feel about, I don't know, your um, legs that you feel, you know, you want them to look great, you want them to be great, you want people to turn around when you walk past them, you want your child to attract all of that positive attention. And one of the lessons of the book, I think, is your child is not you, your child is somebody else, and hopefully somebody you'll really like, um, and definitely somebody you'll love and take care of, but uh, an independent, freestanding individual. So, um and having said that, and having written a whole book about it, and having thought about it at great length and um, quite deeply, I can say that nonetheless, with my own children, when they do so, when I'm out with them and they're behaving badly, I feel like it's embarrassing and reflects on me. And when they do something wonderfully well and beautiful, 
I feel like uh, I'm sort of increased and, you know, magnified by it. So it's not that I think about this fallacy and I'm uh, not prone to it myself, but at least I'm aware of it. At least I notice that I'm doing those things and at least I can say to myself, well, it's not really fair, but that is actually how I feel right now. Yeah, absolutely. And and aren't we all raised to think that way? So why wouldn't we sort of in- incorporated some of that thinking? So, yeah, it's pretty normal for us exactly. to have but also recognizing it and, and, and noticing it for what it is and sort of separating our own thoughts about that from our children makes a difference for the children as well as us. So, all right, um, let's get to the sort of the sto- some of the stories about, you know, the unconditionality of the love of parents who could step out of looking for that mirror and find difference valuable in its own right. What are some of your favorite stories out of this book? Oh, there are so many stories that I love out of the book. I'll tell you a couple of them. Um, I'll tell you the story of Clinton Brown. Clinton Brown was born with something called diastrophic dwarfism. And in his um, uh, day that he was born, the doctor said to his mother that he would never learn to walk, he would never learn to talk, he would never recognize her, and he wasn't going to live very long, and that she should just leave him at the hospital to die quietly. And she said, I'm not going to leave him at the hospital. He's my child, and I'm going to take him home. And she took him home. And she um, found her way, even in a pre-internet era, and she was someone without a lot of resources, she found her way to the best doctor for dealing with diastrophic dwarfism at that time, a man named Stanley Kopitz at um, Johns Hopkins. And she got Clinton enrolled in his protocols, and in the course of his early life, Clinton had 30 major surgical procedures, as a result of which he now, in fact, can walk. And while he was having um, all of those surgeries, there wasn't very much else to do, and he decided he might as well focus on his schoolwork. And so he did um, focus on his schoolwork, and he achieved academically at a higher level than anyone in his family ever had before. And his um, uh, he ended up being one of the first people in his family to go to college. And his mother described to me how um, uh, how she was... At one day, he was going to college nearby. He had a specially fitted car that he was able to drive. She said to me, I was out, and I went driving past a bar, and there was Clinton's car parked outside a bar. She said, and I thought to myself, he's three feet tall, they're six feet tall, two beers for them is four beers for him. She said, and I really wanted to go in and do something, but I knew I couldn't do that. So I just went back to... um, uh, back home and I left him 11 messages on his cell phone. <laughs> and she said, and then I thought, if someone had told me when he was born that my future concern would be that he would go drinking and driving with his college buddies, I would have been so thrilled to have that problem. And I said to her, what do you think you did? What did you think it was that allowed you to, um, uh, to have him uh, emerge as him? How did he become this poised, articulate, friendly, kind person? And um, she said, uh, what did we do? We loved him, that's all. Clinton just always had that light in him. And we were fortunate enough to be the first to see it there. I thought that was such a wonderful statement of sort of how a supportive family could help a, um, a child with differences. Um, and um, uh, that was that was really the story of Clinton Brown. And then, I mean, there are so many. I'll tell you the story because it's one that's had a lot of media attention of um, the family of Dylan Klebold. Dylan Klebold was one of the perpetrators of the Columbine Massacre. And um, he uh, was... Um, 
his parents struggled a great deal uh, with the experience, um, uh, of course, of having had him involved in that. And it had taken me a long time to convince them to talk to me. And when I finally did convince them to talk to me, they were unable to stop talking um, about the experiences they'd had. And at the end of the first weekend I spent with them, I said, we were all exhausted. Sue Klebold was making dinner. We were all sort of sitting around. And I said, if Clinton were here now, is there anything you'd want to ask him? And Tom, Dylan's father, said, there sure is. I'd want to ask him what the hell he thought he was doing. And Sue sort of looked down, and she thought for a minute, and then she looked back up and said, I would ask him to forgive me for being his mother and never knowing what was going on inside his head. And a few years later, when she and I had dinner, she said, you know, when it first happened, I used to wish I had never met uh, Tom, that we had never had children. Um, it would have been so much better, and this terrible thing wouldn't have happened. She said, but over time, I've come to feel that I love the children I have so much that I wouldn't want to imagine a life without them, even at the price of this pain. When I say that, I'm talking about my own pain, of course, not the pain of other people. But life is full of suffering, and this is mine. So while I recognize that it would have been better for the world if Dylan had never been born, I concluded that it would not have been better for me. Wow. Wow. And that... that, that thing of criminality has at its essence a kind of difference from differentness in that we we it is easier for us to blame ourselves as parents when we have a child who's committed a crime especially yes, absolutely. yeah you know and we used to say that parents were to blame because their children were gay because they had um, uh, overbearing mothers and passive fathers and children had autism because they had um, refrigerator mothers, and they had schizophrenia because their parents nurtured a wish that their child not exist. And there was all this talk about how parents were to blame for everything. And we finally moved beyond that point of view in so many different areas, and yet we still tend to do that with crime. And there's no question that there are parents whose abuse and neglect makes their children more likely to become criminal. So it's not that parents have no role at all in this, but the parents have a, a, a sort of fixed and limited um, uh, role, and many times there are parents who have done absolutely everything right, and it just is who their kids are and how they were born or how they've turned out. And I found it very humbling spending time with all of these families. I started off thinking, okay, if I meet the Klebolds, I'll understand how they brought up a child who is capable of doing something so horrific. But actually, the more time I spent with them, the more bewildered I was, and I thought, these are really nice people, and while I happen to be very fond of my own parents, I wouldn't have minded growing up with these parents. And how on earth does um, how on earth do people like this end up with a child like that? And I thought it's just what happened. Um, it's true. It's what happened, and there is no explaining anything from who they are, or what they did, that would explain who their child was or what he did. Yeah, and there's a sense in which trying to explain it all. Um, uh, is a way of sort of trying to uh, reduce differentness. Um, you know, if we can find its cause, then we can sort of reduce it. It's the same thing that we've done with the whole gay, lesbian, um, bisexual, transgender thing of of if we can find out what made this happen, uh, there's a wrongness implied in that that says, well, there's something wrong. We must know why it happened. Um, and, and, and of course, we certainly don't want to raise a lot of children who would, who would do what uh, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris did at Columbine, but we also want to, uh, to not necessarily think that the cause is something we can determine. 
Would you agree with that? I do agree with that strongly. I think part of our part of our challenge is to love what he is rather than to love what we would like to imagine. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that is one of our hardest things to do um, as, as in this whole process. One of the things I loved about uh, your interviews with uh, the Klebolds was uh, uh, what Tom said in the end when you asked, um, I, I'm not even sure if I can remember exactly what you asked, but his answer was that they could, oh, you asked why they had such clarity. And his answer was that they could have such clarity because he was dead. And he had reached the end of his life, so it was easy for them to look back over that and, and go, okay, well, here's what was happening, and now we understand this. And I thought that was such a unique perspective. What did you make of that? Well, I thought it was true. I mean, there were a lot of people who told me stories and whose stories were very much um, uh, inflected by their concern that what they were saying might be hurtful or upsetting to their children. Um and there were a lot of parents who were telling me stories, and they were still very optimistic that ultimately they were going to be able to change the reality that they were um, describing. And they were talking about making it all work out well and making it all turn out better. And there was a sense in talking to the Klebold that they were talking about a situation that no longer had the potential to get better. Um, it only had the potential to stay the way that it was. So that was the, the story that they were, um, that they were telling. Um, and it was a moving story for me to hear. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was a moving story for me to read. So, so, yeah, so um, this whole thing about the end of the story is interesting from my perspective because it, it, it says that if we could know the end of the story, maybe we could stop bargaining in advance. I mean, because what I hear you talking about is something I call bargaining, where if I do this, then this will happen. And where it's sort of a magical thinking that, you know, if I can just do these things, then I will get back the child I want or whatever, whatever. And and that whole bargaining thing is sort of a stage of acceptance and in which we are trying to make the gods give us what we want. And uh, and and so when he, the end of the story is told in the Klebold story, it's kind of like, well, they knew the end, so they knew the story. But we don't know the end in advance, and so we're trying to change the story. And I, I just thought that was such a profound awareness that your book brought to my attention. Well, thank you. I mean, sometimes we really can change the story. So it's not that we should give up trying to change the story. Sometimes when we have kids who are sick, they get better. And sometimes when we have kids who are criminals, they get reformed. And sometimes when we have kids with all kinds of other problems, those problems resolve. But in a way, I always think it comes down to that old serenity prayer about give me the um, uh, courage to change the things that must be changed, the patience to accept the things that cannot be changed, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think the wisdom to know the difference is the hard part of that. I think we can all find the courage and the um, patience if we look deep enough. But I think finding that wisdom and knowing, all right, what is it that can be changed and what is it that can't is a really big question. And if it's something that's not changeable and you throw all your energy into trying to change it, what follows is disaster. And if it's something that is changeable and you don't try to fix it, then you may end up with a child who suffers a great deal unnecessarily. So the stakes are high. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. All right, well, we're going to come back right after the break and talk some more to Andrew Solomon about Far From the Tree. Stay tuned for more. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. How can you make holistic health care work for you? 
When you are in search of wholeness, it's time to listen to Mind, Body, Spirit, Living a Holistic Life with host Renee David Alkali. Here you will find cutting-edge information that approaches the human being as a biochemical, individual, whole person, rather than as a set of isolated symptoms. Learn how it all comes together on Mind, Body, Spirit, Living a Holistic Life. Live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on 7th Wave. Being Outside the Box is your thrival guide to living outside this reality. Are you always waiting for your ship to come in? Do problems happen to you? What if you created your life rather than sitting by waiting? Do you live in the fantasies of this reality? Winning the lottery, waiting for your prince, princess to come, even being healthy? Do you always do what is expected of you rather than choosing for you? What if the rules didn't apply, and what if you could thrive from a different space? Join host Lynn Waldrop for Tools to Being Outside the Box. Listen Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on 7th Wave. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be extraordinary. Be the change. listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back uh, talking today to Andrew Solomon about his book, Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity. And this uh, book is an amazing book that is so uh, profoundly life-changing to someone who is working on the concept of difference and what it's like to either be different or parent someone or even know and love someone who is different. So that's what we're talking about today, this whole concept of difference and um, you've written some other books that got uh, were bestsellers as well and also um, received a lot of awards and you've done a lot of things in your life in terms of you know serving on boards and uh, writing from various perspectives for various different magazines. Um, just tell us a little bit about what you're up to right now in terms of that kind of offering you give to the world. Well, I'm very interested in sort of how the world works and in the organizations that um, work in the fields that I care about. So I'm on quite a number of boards of directors because of the work I did in depression. I'm on the board of the um, uh, National Depression Center, which is based in Michigan. Um, in uh, lesbian and gay rights, I'm on the board of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force um, uh, and have tried to uh, help draft policy there. Uh, that will uh, move forward the cause of lesbian and gay equality in the United States of America. Um, in the arts, I'm on the board at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, which uh, is a wonderful board to be on and an amazing institution to have a real affiliation with. So, um, and I've got a bunch of others that I could um, I could print up, but those are sort of some of the, the prime ones. And um, they're they're thrilling to to have some hands-on work. You know, as a writer. 
What you're doing always is commenting on the social reality. And by commenting on the social reality, you do change the social reality. But it takes a long time and a lot of doing to um, to write all of that. And sometimes being involved with these organizations, you have a more concrete sense of an immediate effect. And I kind of like going back and forth between the writing and, um, and those engagements. Oh, well, that's an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's exactly right. So, yeah, so the idea in general is to offer a change to the world. And what you just said was that, that writing does change the world, but slower. And I think one of the things that writing does is make us more aware. And that awareness does slowly seep into some kind of change in terms of action. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for all the work you do. I really appreciate it. Um, so I wanted okay. to... I mean, I've had... I love the letters that I get on the basis of what I've written. I get a huge amount of correspondence. I'm not able to respond to all of it um, directly, but I've been getting since Far From the Tree came up between 10 and 20 books a day. I mean, 10 and 20 letters a day, um, some days even more. And um, a lot of them come from people who are telling me about their own experience, their experience with depression if they were depressed, their experience with um, their children. And I had one mother who wrote to me and said, now that I've read your book, I will love my children better. And I thought, well, that's the whole thing. If somebody can write to me and say that, this book was worth all those years of work. Oh, absolutely. One person can make that much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I know that has to make you feel wonderful. It was a great, great moment, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, so let's let's talk a little bit about, since you were talking about the... Um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender uh, membership of the board, uh, you wrote a chapter in here about transgenderism, and since that is such a big, uh, Im- uh, important issue in our society right now, it seems to be sort of on the cutting edge of what we think about gender in, in specific and about differentness in general. Uh, can you say a little bit about the stories that you told about transgenderism and, and uh, how that reflected on the general uh, overview of the book? Transgenderism was a really interesting area because I feel like it's something that gets people so anxious and so upset. And the cruelties that had been visited on transgender people and on families of transgender children seemed to me to be so extreme. Um, And the dignity that some of those transgender people had achieved in the face of such discrimination was also very moving to me. So I think, for instance, a woman who was a special needs teacher um, in a small town in Tennessee, um, she had brought all the special needs kids in her district. And at one point, there were some, uh, there was a family of kids who came in, all of whom had special needs, and she discovered that they had been brought up by a mother who had psychosis and who, instead of taking her medication, was feeding it to her children because it sedated them. And the children had all of these problems, and she ended up adopting these three kids um, because she saw how troubled they were, and she was determined to um, help them as much as she could and not to just medicate away all of the things they were showing because she thought a lot of those things come from um, their... uh, come from their uh, experience with this um, terrible uh, birth mother that they had. And in the end, one of them turned out to have pediatric bipolar disorder, and one of them turned out to have ADD, and they were both treated for those things. And the other one just seemed sad. And finally, one day, she was sitting with, um, with the youngest boy, and they were talking, and he said, Mom, you know I'm really a girl. And she said, What? And he said, You've always known I'm really a girl. Look at me. Aren't I really a girl? 
Well, she was very taken aback. She'd never come across anything like this before, but she went off and did her research, and she found out about gender identity disorder, and she took her kid in to see a therapist in Nashville who had a specialty in that area and who was able to diagnose it. And so she said to her child, look, if you finish out this school year, then um, I uh, will let you try living as a girl um, after the school year is over for a week, and we'll see how it goes and how much difference it really makes to you. And she thought it was really just an experiment. So um, uh, her kid, whose name was Kerry, finished out the school year, and then um, his week came, and um, she, as she now was, got to live as Kelly instead. And um, her mother said the change was so overwhelming that I hardly had words for it. I went from having this sad, withdrawn, unhappy little boy to having this exuberant, fun-loving, joyful little girl. Um, and she said, I realized I could never make her go back because the change was just so profound. It was so visible. So she went back and she said, when my child comes back next year in the third grade, she will be coming um, not as a boy named Kerry, but as a girl named Kelly. And it's called Transgender, and here's a book to explain to you just what it's like. And she gave them all of the information. And uh, when she uh, left, she said within 10 minutes, the phone calls began from people saying they were going to take that child away and raise him upright, from people saying they were going to make that child into a woman if that's what the child thought she was, from people saying they were going to kill her, from people saying they were going to kill her child. And her pediatrician called her the next day and said, if you want your child to survive, you'd better get out of here because the talk around the swimming pool wasn't about when to kill your child. Um, it was about um, whether to do it right away or whether to do it soon. It wasn't um, about whether to kill your child, but about when and how. And um, so she packed up her kids um, in her car and she drove away and um, she has never gone back to that town where she had lived almost her entire life. And she said the next day her husband went to work. He'd stayed behind to earn an income and he uh, went to work, and when he was at work, there was a uh, mob that came, and they disemboweled the family dog and nailed it to a fence with a sign that their child was next. Um, and when I talked to the mother of these children, she described to me when she was living in another town, she described how sad it made her that her life had been taken away from her, that her children's lives that she thought they had had been taken away from her, and she said, I miss all these things. I miss the dog, I miss um, uh, my students, I miss the community I had, I miss the church I was a member of, I miss all of it, she said. But you just can't grieve all the time when you've got your kids, she said. And the moment when they come off the bus um, and all run into my arms is one of the happiest moments there could possibly be, and it happens every day, and I have three really happy children, she said. And the fact of having them has made me enter this bigger, more beautiful, more tolerant world where I've met you and lots of other amazing people. She said, and in the end, I'm very grateful. She said, I would still adopt Kelly knowing all of this. I would definitely do it all over again. So that was very moving to me. I mean, it was horrifying what she had been through, and it was very compelling to me that this adoptive mother felt that deep, deep sense of connection and that she'd seen this really miraculous transformation in her own child. Mm-mm-mm. That is an amazing story, and it and it really does tell the whole thing about our fears. And on one end of the polarity, it tells about our fears and how violent we get when we're afraid. And on the other end, it tells a story about commitment and unconditional love and, and willingness to be open. And I guess that's the biggest deal here is that willingness to be open, to first take on the children in the first place and, 
and then to just be open to say, well, let me experiment with that. Let's see what is. Yep, absolutely. Um, and I think it's one of the things, when you become a parent, you have to be prepared to have children who present their challenges. I mean, another person who was transgender who had almost the opposite experience um, was someone called Kim Reed, who was, as um, Paul, the quarterback on her high school football team in, um, uh, uh, where was she? Um, up in the up in the northwest, in Montana. Sorry, in Montana. And um, then she eventually came out and she changed genders. And she made a film about going back to her high school reunion um, as a as a woman and the experiences she had there. I particularly like the moment in the film when she's talking to one of her high school classmates who says, "But Kim, we've all changed." Um, so, but she uh, she then was invited to come back and preach a sermon at her church, to show the film and then preach a sermon at her church, the church she'd grown up in. And that was something that she wanted to seize the occasion to do. And indeed, she did seize that occasion, and she did um, give that sermon, and I was able to go out and be there the weekend that she spoke in her church. And she said, um, uh, she said, everyone in this audience or in this congregation should be only so lucky as to get to welcome home the one they love most with radical love that accepts the difference of their child. And she talked about how she had been afraid that she would not be able to come back to her hometown and she would not be accepted there. And she had found a warm welcome there and she had found a community of support and of love and how it had made her a whole life glorious in ways she could never have imagined. Yes, and I actually saw that movie. It really was a very good uh, documentary of her, the shift and how she was so warmly received uh, and uh, what, do you remember the name of that? So maybe we can yes, recommend it's called Prodigal Sons. Prodigal Sons, that's right. That's right, yeah. Uh, yeah, so absolutely. And so we can, what, what that says, what that sort of screams is that we can learn to accept transgenderism as well as many other, other differences that we've, that we've talk, talked about today. So, yeah. It's really the people who are trans, it's their issue. It's not the issue of the rest of us. The rest of us have to just accept that they're doing their best to figure themselves out and to figure their lives out. And if they've decided this is who they really are, we all have the right to assert our own identity. We all have the right to say, I'm the person I am. We have the right to belong to the religion we want to. We have the right to run our personal life the way we want to, as long as we don't cause injury or harm to other people. Um, and people who are trans, you know, it's not something people are opting into um, just to make trouble. It's too difficult for people to do it if they don't need to. People who are trans and who are making that statement are making that statement because they felt long and deep and it's who they truly are. And I think we have to respect who they truly are. We have to recognize there are some people who are um, uh, perhaps children, especially, who are confused and are unsure. But for the people who are really sure and who really have clarity about it, we just need to accept and celebrate them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, that whole thing makes us as a culture begin to reevaluate what we mean when we talk about gender. Is it just the way you walk and talk and dress or is it is it uh, something much deeper that has to do with your authenticity? So yeah, that whole thing is very, very important to the whole discovery of who we are as a people, as a, as a human being. So overall, so, uh, Andrew, uh, we don't have much time before, before the close of the show, so I just want to say I guess the overall moral of the story here about difference is that difference is something we are learning to accept over time and, and that uh, there are ways to love and appreciate and value difference as, as not only a, uh, a challenge but a teacher. 
Would you agree with that? I do agree with that. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that's just right. I think that um, a lot of the time the people I talked to ended up feeling really grateful for lives that they would have done almost anything to avoid. Um, and I think that was the kind of revelation over and over again that I found so compelling. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you being here, Andrew. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a spectacular interview. I really appreciate your taking the time. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you again. And next okay. week, continue this discussion of difference by talking about the incorporated values as opposed to authentic values. So you want to be here for that. And remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week. Thank you.